0: How do you love yourself where you are when you're, you're ashamed or
1: you feel guilty? Like, how do you find that connection to, to the love? So that's one of the things we're demystifying and smart is like, where the hell does fat go? Where does fat go when you lose it? Where does this quote burn process happen? Fat people are not lean people who eat
0: too much. How on earth is that possible? When it comes to platforms that will help you run a business, there is no shortage of options on the market. But if you want to use the best most advanced, and most efficient platform out there, you need to be using Shopify. For whatever and wherever you wanna sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. With award-winning customer service, the internet's highest converting checkout page, and a suite of integrated AI tools, Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy to start, run, and grow a business. Shopify powers more than 10% of all U.S. e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly use Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash impact right now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. Let's think about one of the arguments I'm
2: making against the energy balance idea. As soon as you decide that obesity is an energy balance disorder, that means either intake is too high or expenditure is too low. You fix it by decreasing intake or increasing expenditure. And what you study, is appetite and hunger and energy expenditure. So you have these hypotheses like, you know, uh, maybe obese people just uh, burn off more calories or they run hot or something like that. And that could explain why their fat tissue doesn't accumulate fat. What you don't study is what was called intermediate metabolism. It might still be, which is all what happens to the foods after you eat them. And you could create hypotheses effortlessly whereby the fat tissue is trapping fat. Remember, it only has to do 20 calories a day. If it somehow figures out a way to just hold on to 20 calories of the thousand that goes in, you're destined to become obese. And what effect that's gonna have on appetite and expenditure. In the case of these VMH lesioned animals with their gasping for food, which is how it was described to me by a researcher who did these rodent experiments in the 60s and 70s. Um, What's so interesting is when you lesion that part of the brain, the ventromedial uh, ventromedial hypothalamus, the first um, measurable physiological effect you see is an increase in insulin secretion. So basically these animals start hyper secreting insulin. And what insulin does is it partitions, doesn't just partition calories into fat. It also shuts off the oxidation, the use of fat for fuel. Okay, so now you imagine these animals, they're a, you uh, uh, knock them out to do the surgery. They wake up from the surgery an hour or two later. And while they've been asleep, their insulin has been elevated and their ability to oxidize fat has gone. So fat is a fuel you're burning when you're not eating and you're not getting the carbs. So you've in effect created two hours of starvation and you've cut off the fuel supply that they would normally be burning for fuel while there's, like for instance, when they're asleep, insulin levels go down, fat comes out of the fat cells, you burn the fat for fuel. That's why we don't wake up in the middle of the night to go eat because we're burning our fats, Our insulin levels are low. That allows us both to mobilize fat from our fat cells and to burn the fat for fuel. Once you've created an effect, this what's called hyperinsulinemia, you've shut off that fuel supply. Since the surgery, the animal has been literally starved. And then it wakes up from the surgery starving. And the reason it's been literally starved, it's because it can't use its
0: fat for fuel. So it doesn't have any glucose in the system and it can't access the fat. So it's literally dying for energy. What is it about damaging that region of the brain that causes this? Is it that damaging that region of the brain causes a spike in insulin and the spike in insulin is the problem? Or is there something else going on? Well, that's Why the that sort of thing. I mean, you
2: know, the way when the researchers in the 1930s, when brain anatomists were doing these kinds of studies, one of the ways you figure out what the brain does Different regions of the brain do you is know, you lesion that region of the brain, you basically break it and you see what no longer functions. So it just happened to be that that was the region of the brain that if you lesion the animal will both get obese and what's called hyper manifests this hyperphagia, this extraordinary hunger. But the interesting thing was again, you could control its food intake and the animal's going to get obese anyway.
0: So okay. you can starve these are the mice that you starve and they still end up adding fat Yeah, in these cases
2: you uh you pair feed them so you only feed them as much as a a lean animal eats you only feed them you calculate what they're eating pre-surgery and you only give them that much access to that much food and they'll get obese Mm -hmm. anyway so again, the argument and- is that you blame it on the eating too much. So you assume and the field did assume that the ventromedial hypothalamus is a is an appetite control center. This is at the heart of still many theories of obesity. And the way we know this is because when you break it, the animals get obese, get hyperphagic, they eat so much, but they'll and they then get obese, but they'll get obese even when they don't aren't allowed to eat any more than lean animals. So what does he eating too much have to do with it? And what's interesting is back in the early 1940s when these studies were being done, the leading neuroanatomist of the day, a man named Stephen Ransom at the Chicago, I think it was Northwestern University. Ransom had just come out of doing similar studies where you could create a disease called diabetes insipidus by lesioning a different part of the brain. And in diabetes insipidus, the animals urinate constantly and they're thirsty all the time. So they drink constantly. And what um, Ransom figured out is that the, the lesion actually causes them to urinate. And so the thirst that they manifest is not caused by the lesion. It's caused by the urge to replace the body water that they're losing through the urination. The same thing happens in in you know, untreated diabetes of any kind. Um, So Ranson said to himself, look, if the animal's losing water and he's so thirsty, it's so thirsty because it's replenishing that water, maybe this animal, the VMH lesion, is losing calories into the fat and it's eating so much, it's hyperphagia because it's replacing the calories that it can't, that it's losing into the fat, just like the other animals losing water by urinating. So his theory was basically just that, that the lesion causes the animal to accumulate excess fat and the animal eats a lot to try and replace those calories. And then uh, three months after he wrote that paper, um, Ranson died of a heart attack and his graduate student who had created this lesioning technique. Uh, Albert Hetherington in 1943 joined the Air Force and went off to participate in the Second World War. And so they stopped arguing for that theory and the counter theory that the lesion caused a hyperphasia was being touted by a, another former graduate student of Ransom's, a guy named John Brobeck. And John Brobeck kept writing about it and Brobeck's theory took over the field purely because Ranson died and Heatherington joined the Air Force. So
0: crazy. So your hypothesis, if I can put a fine point on it, is the reason that people who get fat easily get fat is not because they're overeating per se, because that is still some part of the equation. Um, They're still intaking enough food that they're not below that breaking point where no matter what, you're going to have a problem, you're going to lose weight. Their fats, their fat cells for reasons we have not yet discussed, uh, are taking up more calories than they ought to, and right. it is leaving them perpetually accumulating fat because they'll be hungry enough that for them to eat so few calories that with their supercharged desire to grab fat, it's basically an impossible way to live unless somebody locks you in a cage. And so now yes. people say, or, uh, "Oh, this is a
2: concentration camp," is the case may be. Right.
0: Yeah. So people thusly, look at it and say, and this is where I think the complexity comes in. They know the, the judgmental person looking at that person knows there is a caloric point that I could drop you to where you are going to get lean, but what they're not realizing is that, Hey, some people's fat cells are sucking up an unusual amount of fat, which is leaving them extraordinarily hungry. And I'm going to guess that part of this mechanism of sucking up too much fat is an increase in insulin. And so now you're not only storing too much fat, but you're not accessing the fat to burn. And so now to get fed, you're going to need to eat and this part now I'm really guessing that you may find yourself drawn to carbohydrate foods because that's going to turn to glycogen or glucose, excuse me. Uh, in your system. And therefore now, finally, I have something that I can burn, but that's going to exacerbate the situation because now your insulin levels are going to go back up. And so you're in like this death loop of the only thing that makes me feel fed are these high carbohydrate meals. I'm able to pull a ton of fat into my cells as it is, but I can't get it back out because of elevated insulin levels.
2: It's not just that you can't get it out, you can get it out on occasions, but as long as insulin is elevated, your body is being told not to burn the fat, but to burn the carbs. So if insulin is elevated, carbohydrates are your fuel. So part of this theory is also this concept of insulin resistance. So your body becomes, if you're overweight, the uh, you know, particularly abdominally, if your waist size is increasing, that pretty much tells you you're insulin resistant. If you're insulin resistant, your body has to secrete more insulin to take up a set amount of glucose from, this, from the circulation and burn it for fuel. So uh, you have elevated, abnormally elevated levels of insulin most of the day. And when the insulin is elevated, it's telling the rest of your body to burn carbs. It's telling your fat cells to store fat. It's telling the rest of your body don't burn the fat because it's only supposed to be elevated when there are carbohydrates available to be burned. And so it's telling them to burn carbs. So carbs are in effect your body's primary fuel source when insulin is elevated and you can't switch over to burning fat because the insulin prevents that from happening. So now you crave carbs cause that's your fuel. As your blood sugar starts to go down, you need to raise it back up so you could burn it for fuel. You crave carbs. And then sugar might be a special case, which gets into the hepatic metabolism of the fructose. And we probably don't want to go there at this moment.
0: Not, not at this moment. Cause I think there's um, more to say here. So, so if insulin is raised And that's part of why um, the fat isn't being unlocked. It's part of why you crave carbohydrates It's part of how you get in this death loop. Um, Then the answer is, well, if there were a food that you could eat that didn't raise your insulin, then even though you put on fat more easily, you should be able to get into a position where you're just not giving any extra oomph to the system, telling it to store and store and store. And so now we get into cutting out carbohydrates.
2: Yeah. Well, there's another aspect of this, which is um, your fat tissue is the most sensitive tissue in the body to insulin. So if insulin is elevated even a little bit, your fat tissue will hold on to fat. That's what it does. And this sensitivity of the fat, the exquisite sensitivity of fat to insulin is something that's been known since pretty much as soon as they could measure insulin in the bloodstream. It was the 1960s. Um, Actually, even before that, when researchers wanted to test whether or not there was insulin in the, like, you want to find out if someone's secreting insulin, you take a blood sample, you inject some of the blood into a Petri dish, which has fat cells from a rat in it, because the fat cells will respond if insulin's in the blood at any level, whereas other tissue might be resistant to it. The fat always stays sensitive to it. So the Ideas, if you want to get fat out of your fat tissue, the fat has to see, in effect, no insulin. Yeah. And how do you know if you're, how do you minimize your insulin levels while well, you eat and affect a ketogenic diet? In fact, if you're in ketosis, it means your liver is seeing basically very little insulin and your fat is seeing no insulin because it's mobilizing fat from the fat cells so that they can be converted to ketones in the liver. So the case for keto is literally some people, you know, the idea is so there's some simple ideas that come out of it. Carbohydrates are fattening because they raise insulin and insulin makes us store fat as fat (laughs) in our fat cells. So the carbohydrates regulate the fat storage in effect through primarily the hormone insulin. Other hormones also play a role, but you can simplify it to insulin. Um, so carbohydrates are fattening to those of us who fatten easily. Not all of us are susceptible. And if you want some of us, the case for keto, if we want to get significant fat out of our fat cells and keep it out, then we have to minimize insulin and minimizing insulin means in effect, minimizing carbohydrate consumption.
0: One thing you said in the book really plainly that it, it sort of put everything together for me was when you're thinking about people that put on fat easily, it really might be as simple as the amount of insulin that needs to be present in the bloodstream in order for the fat cells to lock down, to pull in the fat and not release anything, yeah. just might be really low. And so my wife has a friend who, man, this woman, all she eats is carbohydrates and she is just stick thin. Now, mm. if, if that's true, that would make a lot of sense that she just has a very high level that where she can have insulin in her bloodstream that's pulling out the glucose. Um, but her fat cells tolerate quite a high level and don't have that same ravenous desire to partition, um, the available, um, calories into the fat cells. And when you think about it like that, The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. only remaining question is, okay, that makes sense, but where, given that energy balance is a real thing the energy has to be going somewhere so what is happening for her does does anybody know have they done any tests like what's going on is she breathing it out is she running hotter is she uh, is it It'd be all of out the above her stool
2: yeah you know, when i was growing up uh, i have an older brother who's two years older than i am and he's always a little taller and he was always very lean the kind of kid you could see like the you know the veins on his arms and you know, when he was 10. Um, I never really thought about it. We were just different. We were just different. You know, he. we both ate as much as humanly possible. In fact, by the time we were in our teens, we ate dinner and it was 18 minutes. So back then, you know, your mother who's a work, you know, a working housewife would cook family style. So like two roast chickens for four people and you know some starch and some green vegetable and we would eat fast because if i didn't eat fast my brother would get to it before i did so massive amounts he was he could not put on fat and i could not have been as lean as he was unless i starved myself he grew up he became uh didn't want to play football in college because he saw in a chart in the coach's office when he was making the rounds of colleges that they had him bulking up from 190 to 240. He was six foot five. And he thought that's out of the question. So he became a rower and he would row an hour a day and then run an hour a day and, you know, lift weights an hour a day. And I became a football player and I did get up to 240, you know, but I couldn't run 10 miles. He could do it, you know, Run ten miles, come home, change into his street clothes, and go off to class. I would, if I did it, I would. A my body would break down, and then I would be, you know, in a coma for two days. Um, it's conceivable that the reason he exercises so much, he ate enormous amounts of food. I mean, he once told me that he didn't get never got stuffed he just got bored of eating after a couple of hours whoa okay but he could not put on fat he just couldn't do it so his body must have burned those calories off and one way you do it and when you again you go back to the you know pre-1960s medical literature the research would talk about the impulse to physical activity like literally having energy to burn so somebody like him he's he's going for a 10-mile run he's not thin because he's running 10 miles. He's running 10 miles because his body doesn't want to store calories as fat. So it's got to burn them off. It's a different way of thinking about everything. So you kind of flip the causality.
0: Going going back to Herman Ponzer and um, his take on the Hadza is that they're not burning any more calories than anybody else. Uh, They intake a ton of carbohydrate in the form of honey. But I'm very curious what, what is going on there? Is, do you think that the data is inaccurate and they really are being more active and burning more calories? No, I mean, the
2: question is what, so the, the issue was always not the amount of carbohydrates, but the quality of the carbohydrates being consumed. So Western populations, you transition, basically refined grains and sugars were the problem. Um,
0: and those hit harder in terms of insulin versus honey.
2: Well, that's what we don't know. So then the question is, cause in the West, you rarely see people eating more than a pound or two of honey a year. You look at honey consumption over a century, it barely changes. But what did change was massive amounts of sugar. Um, it's this question, what constitutes a black swan for hypothesis? So the, um, part of the hypothesis, another aspect of it discussed in good calories, bad calories, is this Western disease observation which begins actually in the late 19th century with a French physician who documents higher rates of cancer in urban areas and rural areas and in Europe than in Northern African populations and postulates that cancer is a disease of civilization. And then through the 20th century, a whole series of physicians from all around the world observed that when populations transition from eating whatever their traditional diet is, to Western diets and lifestyles, they manifest obesity, diabetes, heart disease, uh, hypertension, arthritis, a whole cluster of metabolic diseases that, that also cluster together in patients. So the theory becomes what's causing it. And by the 1960s, the leading theory is first sugar and white flour, and that's British physicians who have sort of, you know, been surveying all these missionary and colonial physicians and hospitals and clinics around the world. Uh, then that transitions into the sugar only hypothesis of a fellow named John Yudkin. And then it ends as the idea that it's not the presence of sugar or white flour, it's the absence of fiber in these foods and the carbohydrate foods we eat. And It's a story I tell in great length and good calories, bad calories, and how you end up with a theory that could coexist with the idea that dietary fat causes heart disease. The point is, it's clear that when populations are westernized, they manifest obesity, diabetes, and all these things. And a viable hypothesis is the refined carbohydrates and the sugars, maybe particularly the sugars, the caloric sweeteners, and maybe even particularly Coke and Pepsi that you drink (laughs) Um, leads to insulin resistance, which causes or exacerbates the risk of all these diseases. Now, the question is, you find a population like the Hadza and they're honey eaters, and they don't have high levels of obesity and diabetes is that enough to refute this other idea? So once you say this population can eat significant honey, does that mean that it's not the Coke and the Pepsi and the sweets and the candy and the chocolate bars and the white flour influencing insulin and all these other populations? And the answer is, I don't think it's enough. Because one possibility is that when the Hottas started consuming honey, say, a thousand years ago, they had their obesity, diabetes epidemics then. And so what we have left is a population that's particularly resistant to the effect of the fructose in the honey. And the, uh, it could be that when you eat honey, you eat it differently than you do You know, we drink sugary beverages all day long, um, starting with breakfast and then between snacks, even if we're coffee drinkers, if we drink our coffee sweetened, we're basically um, titrating sugar all day, maybe I don't know how they eat honey that could be different. So the question is, you know, Herman Pontzer. as far as I know, I have to cop. I didn't read his book because it never got cheaper than $25 on Amazon, on Kindle. And I've been waiting for the price to come down, even though I know he's got a couple of chapters in which he makes fun of my ideas. I should read it. Um, I don't believe that's technically a black swan because the, the hypothesis is when a population transitions to Western diet, and particularly the refined grains and sugars of a Western diet, that triggers this physiological effect that manifests as this cluster of metabolic diseases, the Hadza have never made that transition. One interesting thing to find out would be if there are members of the Hadza who move into urban areas and do start drinking Mm. their sugar instead of eating it as um, honey, that would be interesting. Because many so, of these observations were made by uh, actually British and, and physician missionary physicians who spent time in Africa, who said, look, I see different disease rates in rural African tribes that I see in urban African tribes. So a different spectrum of chronic diseases. And in Africa, I have... Uh, urban black population that has very low levels of obesity and diabetes. But if I go to America, I will see a black population only 200 years separated in time with very high levels of obesity and diabetes. Mm -hmm. So there's clearly something about the American food environment that has triggered this obese diabetic phenotype. The question is, what is it? If it's not the honey, if it's not the sugar, if they, you say the honey refutes it, I don't think it's enough. Um, I think there are too many other explanations for why the Hudson might be able to consume honey and not get obese and diabetic and heart disease and all the rest.
3: I went into this journey thinking, oh, you know, I'm gonna get fat and then I'm gonna get fit and it's gonna be a physical thing. But the, I came out of it realizing that transformation is so much more mental and emotional than people think. And if you've never been overweight, Mostly, what you can relate to is the physical side of weight loss, right? Eat less and work out. You know that, right? You got that. You've lived that. But the mental and emotional side, you haven't lived that until you've kind of been down this path. And so, for me, my eyes were opened. I realized just how wrong I was with trying to help people, right? And you mean your strategies were actually bad because you didn't understand the mental? They weren't bad. They were just incomplete. They were just focused on the physical. So, if someone was struggling with their transformation. I'm like, okay, let's change up your macros, change up your calories, change up your workouts. That's the missing component, right? That's what I, uh, I focus on, because that's all I knew, rather than trying to help them on the mental and emotional side, which is what people struggle with, right? I think people, it's not so much a lack of knowledge, right? Uh, people know they need to eat healthy and work out. It's, it's the application on the mental and emotional side and the consistency of living that lifestyle over, over time, and that's where people struggle, is, is maintaining as a lifestyle change, which is more up here, than it is in the gym or in the kitchen so
0: i want to really define what you mean by mental and emotional Okay. so what is it that people <clears throat> are struggling with an attachment to food um, the emotional reward of eating like what is it
3: yeah and it's, it's different for each person the thing that i realized was was how powerful the emotional connection to food really is whereas before i'm like look it's not that hard you just you know stop eating the junk food put down the soda you go to the gym every day What's wrong? Like it's not that hard. <laughs> Until I lived it. Even, even though it was only for just six months, when I switched and tried to lose the weight, that emotional connection to food was way more powerful, even for me as a trainer, someone who lived their whole life healthy. And my body went through those withdrawal symptoms, right? Almost like a, a drug addict. I, w- I won't say I was addicted. Some people are truly addicted. But for me. Just being aware of how powerful that emotional connection to food really is. What do you do when you have cravings or, you know, when you, when you eat your emotions, when you're sad or you're happy, we celebrate or we had a stressful day. So we're like, you know what, I deserve wine and chocolate tonight because I had a stressful day. So how do you help people hmm.
0: through that? So I grew up in a morbidly obese family, so I, I know exactly how people can find comfort and or celebration in mm-hmm. food. How do you <clears> help them? dive into that? Like, do you get like psychological and, mm-hmm. and actually almost like a therapist walk them through that stuff?
3: So there's obviously a physical component of transformation so that you help them with the, the physical side. But I think, you know, it's like 10% of that, 90% help them with the mental and emotional side. And how I do that is putting them in support groups, right? So it's not just me because I'm still a fit guy and it's putting them in a support group where they, it's a safe place for them to share their struggles, their successes, their failures. And receive that encouragement and that empathy, that love, and that people letting them know that they're worth it to continue to fight for their health. So in researching you
0: and coming across this whole notion of self-love <clears throat> and self-worth, it's so interesting to me how caught up in all of this that is. How often do you see where somebody's really struggling with with that? Like, there's almost a conflict of. I'm not worth pushing through and getting to my goal.
3: I think that's the majority of people that struggle with their health. Some people really don't feel like they're worthy and how do you convince someone that they are worthy? I still don't know. It's, it's still up to them. It has to be their idea. I can't tell someone they're beautiful. They have to truly believe that they're beautiful. They have to truly believe that they're worth it. It's you know hope that by telling them and putting them in a group where other people are telling them as well. Um, that they will find that inner motivation and inspiration and kind of like, you know, inception to come up with that idea themselves. Like maybe I am worthy. Maybe, you know, I can do hard things. The health and fitness industry, in my opinion, hasn't used this fully yet. And that's kind of what my hope is with fit 2 fit, to fit is to use empathy as a tool. Because I feel like empathy can bridge that gap between people that feel like they're stuck and they feel judged by society and they feel judged and and looked down upon by people who are skinny and naturally fit people are going to be more willing to listen to you know their trainer or coach if that person has that empathy and can really come down to their level walk in their shoes a little bit and really understand where they're coming from and then they'll be more willing to listen to the advice that you have and the, the physical tools or hacks that you have to help them along their their journey you said something really interesting you said maybe i am worthy maybe i
0: can do the hard things do you think there's some tie between a willingness or uh, having the stick to to actually do the hard things, is that tied to a sense of self-worth? Like, do you think that those two feed each other?
3: Yeah, I think they do feed each other. And I don't know which one comes first. I think it's different for each person. Um, but I think, you know, if someone, for example, like, is, is on a physical transformation, they're trying to get healthy, if they have these small wins in their life, right? Like, I did my first burpee or I did my first push-up or pull-up or, you know, I ate healthy for a whole day. Um, These senses, these small things of accomplishment help build that confidence of maybe I can do hard things. I recently had this guy from Nashville come out um, to work with me. You know, he started out 600 pounds. He's been doing keto, intermittent fasting is down to 450 pounds. And the thing that gravitated him to me and my brand was the the whole empathy thing and, and understanding where he's coming from. Um, because he felt judged by by other people, and so he's like, "Drew, I only want to work with you." And we took him to this place called Jim Jones in Salt Lake City, and they've trained the cast of three hundred, and they train um, Superman, um, and so these celebrities. And I'm like, "Okay, we're going here," and he was like, "Scared to death." He's like, "Drew, you're trying to kill me." I'm like, "No, I'm not going to kill you. Like, I understand that we're going to start out slow, but um, you know, I had him do modifications to the things that we were doing in the workout, and it was hard for him. But at the end of the day, he's like, Drew. Like, he started crying. He's like, Drew. I, like this was the best thing for me. Like being able to do, you know, ball slams like you guys and being able to do like modified push-ups. He's like, I haven't moved my body in, in years. And um, I, I think after he came out here, like he was super confident and, and I had him say these pos- positive affirmations to himself. Like I can do hard things as he's doing the workout. I can do hard things. That's just doing farmer's carries and wanting to give up, but he pushed harder. And if I can get him to believe that he can do hard things, even though it's small at first, then it's going to help motivate him and push him, you know, when he tries to do something that it's like, oh, that's impossible. There's no way I could do that. But now he's like, maybe I can do that.
0: Dude, let's talk (laughs) about hard things. I love that so much. And yeah, like I'm absolutely obsessed with the notion of earning credibility with yourself. Yeah. Where you say you're gonna do something, you do it, you push yourself to do something that's difficult and you stick with it. And I think mm-hmm. I don't know that I've ever really put a super fine point on what, what is the birthplace of self-worth. Mm-hmm. But if you were gonna force me to do it, yeah. doing hard things is almost certainly like the most foundational. It's probably not the sum total, yeah. but The willingness to stick through it and actually do the hard things is almost certainly like the core of that. So how do you, somebody that isn't coming and they're not working with you and Mm -hmm. you have to do it remotely, um, what would you prescribe to them to do to show them that they can do the hard things to begin building that self-worth?
3: Yeah. Put out these mini challenges throughout the month. Like, okay, you guys, this month we're going to focus, sometimes it's a physical thing, but other times it's like, hey guys, for 30 days, I want to challenge you to do maybe three to five positive affirmations every single day. And all you're saying to yourself is, I can do hard things or I am worthy or I love myself and I'm proud of who I am. It's not a direct, um, you know, cause of weight loss, but if you can uh, set yourself up for this win that's going to help you set set that's going to help set you up for these other wins down the road when it comes to the workout you're going to do this month or sticking with whatever diet you're trying to do for that month because then you realize man I can do hard things even if you don't believe it at first and that's the thing people really don't believe positive affirmations at first because they've had 30 40 years of negative self-talk and now you're trying to tell them you know just say these things out loud to yourself words have power and they can actually change your beliefs and they can actually change you at the cellular level the more you say them consistently. So I think there's something to saying positive words about yourself to yourself every single day. And so that's, that's one thing that I do in these private Facebook groups to build that confidence and, and uh, convince that person that they can do hard things. That Dude, <laughs> so
0: I'm obviously way into self-talk, the narrative that you tell yourself about yourself. What do you tell people when they're like, but I don't believe it. Mm-hmm. And so is, is it just, well, repeating it is mm-hmm. the key here. And so it's part of the process of beginning to believe, or yeah. do you have something else that helps somebody get over that notion of you're asking me to say something that I fundamentally think is false.
3: Yeah. And I, I think for some people it does work where the more consistent they say it out out loud to themselves, they do eventually believe it. Cause honestly, that was my testimonial. I've been through this in a different way, not from a physical transformation, but self-worth negative self-talk for me saying it out loud helped me believe it if i remember the first time i said a positive affirmation i had goosebumps and i almost started crying like and um for me like a tough dude it was weird um so for me just kind of telling you my own testimony of this it's changed my life 100 percent. saying positive words can help set you up for positive wins throughout the day in other areas of your life
0: So I want to go to your journey with self-talk. So episode one hundred of your podcast, beyond (laughs) amazing, by the way, absolutely incredible, and obviously speaks to your tattoo that vulnerability is strength. Yeah, Um, talk to me about that. Like, how did that become such an important thing for you? Um, what was episode 100? Why did you do it? I mean, like a lot of questions
3: around that. 100%. First of all, thank you for listening to it. I really appreciate that. That means a lot to me. Um, I was, because I was scared to death to post that. So, my whole life, the culture I grew up in, from religion to sports to my family, was, you know, um, vulnerability is a weakness. You don't talk about your feelings. That was just the way I grew up. You know, sports, football, wrestling, you know, you don't make excuses. You just do it. And if you make a mistake, there's a punishment. And Same thing with the religion I grew up in, you know, if you weren't perfect and you sinned Then there was some type of punishment to where I felt shamed I felt guilt and so my whole life for 30 plus years was surrounded by guilt and shame because here I was trying to Be perfect on the outside for everybody for my parents my church leaders my coaches my my spouse at the time Um, When in reality, I knew that I was a fraud I had weaknesses and I wasn't perfect And, but I couldn't deal with that from a very young age. I would hide it because I'm like, you know what, it's better just to pretend and fake it rather than, um, uh, you know, the disappointment um, and uh, having that punishment in my life. And so from a very young age, I developed that habit of, you know what, it's it's not worth confessing or talking about it because then, you know, everybody knows. And the guilt and the shame just consumed me and eventually broke me to where I just lived the life of um, lies and it was inauthentic and eventually broke me as a man and that was the that was the start of me starting to transform and change my perspective of how I viewed myself once I learned how to love myself and realizing that shame has so much more power over you when you don't talk about it <laughs> the things that bring you shame and so for me having that courage to talk about things that were embarrassing you know, growing up, or that brought me shame, I realized that it's not as scary as I thought in my head. I would create these stories in my head of how scary it would be if people found out the real me. Um, but once I owned my story and embraced vulnerability as a strength, changed my life. I can authentically be me for the first time in my life. I feel like I'm finally living, but it took me 34 years to figure this out. And I wish I would have figured this out at a young age, but I had no one there to teach me. I had to learn from making mistakes. So for me, with everything that happened from you know, pornography and affair and all these things that are looked at as bad, I'm 100% grateful for. Why? Because it changed who I am and I can finally live an authentic life and I own my story. I have no embarrassment or guilt or shame. Like talking about it doesn't make me feel uncomfortable. It doesn't embarrass me anymore. And my hope is that other people that, have, that are in that situation or have been through that situation have that hope and can find that courage within to embrace vulnerability and own your story because life's short, man. And I wish I would have learned this at a younger age so that I didn't have to go through all that, that heartache.
0: How do you love yourself where you are when you're, you're
3: ashamed or you feel guilty? Like, how do you find that connection to, to the love? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think what it stems from is expectations on life. Like, we have expectations of, if I do this, then I will be I will be this. And rather than faking it and pretending like it didn't happen or not talking about it, um, embrace the entire story and realize that everything happens for your greater good. Like this happened, like this pornography addiction or this affair happened so that you can grow from this to become who you're supposed to be. And I couldn't learn that from religion. I had to, I couldn't learn that from, you know, the culture I grew up in. I had to learn it from other people, like being open to other people and their philosophies and theories, like Brene Brown's books and uh, Byron Katie and, and so many other books, like The Four Agreements, The Fifth Agreement totally changed my perspective of how I view life and how I view me, right? And I I realized I suffered in life because of how I viewed myself. I saw myself as a failure because of these, you know, weaknesses or sins that I had. And um, because of that, I did failure-like things because I saw myself as a failure. And um, if I had learned that at an earlier age to love myself, I feel like all my other relationships would have been so much better. And I feel like every relationship in your life stems from how you view yourself. Everything's a mirror of how you view yourself. The way you treat your spouse, your kids, your, your loved ones, and a sh- complete stranger starts with how you view yourself. Really
0: powerful, man. And um, what you ended episode 100, it was really powerful and it hit me. Like I actually got emotional when you said it and you, it, it was like the wrap up. And so you are just kind of throwing off comments, but there was one thing you said and I really felt it. And it was like, Basically, I hope you guys are cool with me sharing all of this how you feel about it It's really not my business anyway That's your business and you'd already talked about that whole thing and you said, you know I'm just trying to love myself and to be worthy of love and like that one really stopped me in my tracks and I just thought Wow, like that's so powerful to have as sort of a guiding force in your life What does that look like
3: for you to to be worthy of love? Yeah, that's a great question and and to be totally honest with you. I think that's something that, kinda like fitness, I always have to work on, right? Um, Cause I'm not perfect, you know, even all the work that I've done has got me to a better place, but I still, you know, sometimes struggle with that, um, that, that, you know, feeling worthy of love. So it's something that you constantly have to work on, like health and fitness and nutrition. Like, it, it's not like there's a finish line, you're done, boom. No matter what happens in life, you're, you'll be good. Um, it's something that I constantly have to work on to remind myself. So things like meditation every day on a daily basis, saying positive affirmations, even still, because um, I've noticed there's times in my life where I get busy with work and I don't do them and I notice a big difference and I start to believe those old, those old thoughts come back. And so if you don't put in the work every day, just like exercise, you, you lose that, um, that positive self-talk and that negative self-talk will always be there, I feel like, and so it's a constant battle.
0: It's interesting because there's so many parallels to fitness and the mindset. And when you were talking about when you gained all the weight, that you just didn't have the energy and you didn't want to work out. For the first time in your life, you didn't want to work out. Mm -hmm. And to parallel that to the same thing going on mentally, where if you're not staying on top of it, all of a sudden something that you can sort of take for granted, this desire to feel good, feeling positive about yourself, believing positive things about yourself, Mm -hmm. that also begins to atrophy just like a muscle
3: yeah back then i focused so much on the physical aspect of of weight loss or just transformation in general but now i've been doing this for years i realize like that's what we're missing in the health and fitness industry is it's not just physical right the mental emotional and even spiritual side are all paralleled and like it has to be a complete transformation otherwise it's just going to be a diet that people do for 30 or 60 days but if they can work on the mental, emotional, and spiritual while they're working on the physical, that's where I feel like people will really truly be fulfilled because they realize that it's not just about being skinny or having six pack that brings them fulfillment, right? Like Tony Robbins says, success without fulfillment is ultimate failure. So you could have the perfect body, but so many people with perfect bodies are miserable inside and they hate themselves still. Why? Because they don't take care of the mental, emotional, and spiritual, and they have to all be taken care of. Otherwise, they all atrophy, like you said, and you'll, you'll be, you'll find out that your life is, is um, out of balance in a way. And so what does that look like? So we all know sort of what a good <laughs> diet and exercise looks like. Yeah. What is, so you
0: mentioned daily affirmations, mm-hmm. uh, positive affirmations. What are some other things that you
3: would have people do as sort of a, a part of just like your regular routine? Uh, daily gratitude list. And what I mean by that is is looking around you and being grateful for what you have now, rather than like, oh, I'll be happy when I reach my first million dollars. I'll be happy when um, you know this or that happens in business. I think a lot of people do it wrong, though. They, you know, just like with physical transformation, they're like, oh, I'll be happy when I meet this goal, and then I'll celebrate. I think that's where people struggle and people suffer because they get unhappy because they're not there yet, right? And then they get there, and they're like. Well, that wasn't it, what is it now? Like they're looking for something else, some kind of outside source of happiness. When in reality, you can create it inside. You know, you can choose to do it, it's hard. It takes rewiring your brain, it doesn't happen overnight. But um, I promise you that, you know, if you can do things like a a daily gratitude list every single day, that's gonna uh, help you be fulfilled in the here and now while you're working on a better version of yourself.
0: One of the things that I wanna really go ham on today, uh, because you cover it so interestingly in the book is burning fat, changing your life through your diet. And the fact that people struggle with it, not because of calories, but because of a failure to recognize how individual we are. Um, walk me through that dilemma. Talk about how you approach in the book and what the hell people are supposed to do with the fact that nobody is like them, which is something you mentioned over and over in the book. Help us.
1: Yes. Perfect, man. Yeah. So there's this term that we're really working to impress upon culture called your metabolic fingerprint. All right. Each of us has a unique metabolic fingerprint. And this consists of, of course, there's genetic components, there's microbial components. Mm. There's so much about us that makes us so diverse. There's nobody like you in the history of humanity who has the same metabolism. And there'll never be anybody like you in the future. And the craziest part, Tom, is that there's even yourself right now, your metabolism next week is going to be significantly different. It's constantly changing and evolving and adapting. And I'm really working to impress this upon culture because this cookie cutter system of nutrition has not, has not really given us good results if we just look at what's happening with our society. A big part of that, as you mentioned, when I went to school, I went to a nice private university, very expensive they had a great pre-med track and i took a nutritional science class which was an elective i didn't have to take it (laughs) i thought nutrition had to do with fitness right so i was like okay i'm going to learn about how to be more fit there was nuance there because you know i didn't really understand the difference with health and fitness and so the very first day of class the very first day of class he said that if you want to control your body composition all you have to do is control calories if you want to control your health, we just need to manage calories. Calories were the tip of the spear; it was the thing that we were taught. If we can regulate this thing, this entity, then we can regulate our health. Now, the big problem that's kind of manifested in culture is that there's actually these epicaloric controllers, right? Sort of like epigenetics, right? There's things that are above genetic control. Now we know there are things above caloric control that actually control what calories do in our bodies which gets back to our unique metabolic fingerprint in a moment, but getting that from my professor, and by the way, sidebar, my, my professor was borderline obese himself, and he was an incredibly brilliant man, and he was doing the things that he was, he wasn't like secretly going and like beer bonging like three Musketeers or whatever, like he was teaching us at the time, it was the food pyramid, right? Seven to 11 servings of whole grains each day should be the staple, the, the, the base of the diet, And in that system of thinking, all he did was he created learned helplessness because he kept trying to do the thing. He's just like, well, I just need 14 to 19 servings of whole grains and I'll get it. I just need to cut my calories more. And it wasn't working. And what we know today is that, for example, I'll give you one of the the epicaloric controllers. You've said this before, Tom. You've heard many people say this. It's not just the calories. It's the quality of the calories. Just like with Sleep Smarter, it's not just the minutes of sleep, it's the quality of those minutes. And so now we've got a really interesting study. This was published in Food and Nutrition Research, and I mapped this out really well in Eat Smarter. The research wanted to find out what happened, what happens when you eat a meal of whole foods versus a meal of processed foods. Mm. And so they had some test subjects to consume what they deemed to be a whole food sandwich, which was multi-grain bread and cheddar cheese, all right? Now that's, of course, is debatable, but now they've got the other group of test subjects consuming a processed food sandwich, which was white bread and cheese product. And some folks might be like, what the hell is cheese product? That's what Kraft is, Kraft Singles. They can't legally call it Kraft cheese because there's not enough cheese in the Mm -hmm. cheese, but as I digress. So anyways, here's the most important part of this story. The sandwiches are the exact same amount of calories, the whole food version and the processed food version. Same amount of fats, carbohydrates, and proteins. On paper, same sandwich. It should have the same metabolic effect according to the calories in, calories out model. But here's what happened. After compiling the data, the folks who ate the processed food sandwich had a 50% reduction in calorie burn after eating that meal versus the people who ate the whole food version.
0: All right, so I'm, I'm gonna pause it there. Why, how, how did they determine burn?
1: Right. Yeah. So this is a great example, a little sidebar for everybody to understand the pathway of fat leaving your body or what we call this caloric expenditure. So that's one of the things we're demystifying and Smarter. is like, where the hell does fat go? Where does fat go when you lose it? Where does this, quote, burn process happen? So number one, we've got when we're thinking about like eliminating fat, we are not we can't indiscriminately kill a fat cell itself. When you're born, you have about the same amount of fat cells that you have today. Um, what happens is the fat cells themselves get filled with contents right in the form of these energy packets like triglycerides and what we're doing by the way your fat cells can swell up and They can become a hundred times their their size their original size So it's it's crazy what fat cells can do And so what we're with the goal is when we're talking about quote fat loss is getting the fat cell to number one open to release its contents then it needs to get shuttled to its end station, which primarily the mitochondria, to actually be burned at this metabolic power plant. And it gives off this ATP, gives off energy. But what they discovered was that about 84% of the fat that we lose is via carbon dioxide when we breathe out. So as you
0: describe the sandwich, so first of all, the mildly processed sandwich, because even cheese is obviously processed food, Um, does not strike me as the ideal barometer for whether this is accurate. So it's interesting that there are still pretty staggering results between um, mildly processed and extremely processed. And then what is your prediction? If they were to do that with like the Sean Stevenson prescribed whole food diet, would that reduction in burn from where you're at with a true, real optimized whole food diet be even more Even better
1: yes exactly that's the point that's the point but that's getting back to what are your genes expecting you to eat because the further we get kind of mutated and away from the 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 origin of a food the more complex it becomes for our for ourselves to really recognize how to use that food which created these what i call these hormonal clogs so this is why there was this reduction in energy expenditure post eating that sandwich basically their hormones their, their tissues became much more stingy and hanging on to that caloric energy and so the fat cells not opening up. So that's number one. They, and this is, this is the part of the nuance. Like we can't identify, we the study doesn't it. identify, right? Where is the clog happening? But we know it's happening. And I would argue that it's happening throughout the entire process, right? The fat cell being able to have its intelligence to do its job correctly. Because another thing, even if the fat cell releases contents, it can get reabsorbed somewhere else. So it needs to get to its end destination. And then the process of metabolism with the mitochondria, the mitochondria have to be healthy and doing their job. You know, and so so many pieces along this process can become uh, can become damaged. You know, and here's the great thing about us as humans. We're very resilient, like your body can sort itself. If you just look at us, like just look at what the body is able to take, how unhealthy we can be. And still be kicking, you know, but also just imagine how good things can get as well. You know, when we give our giving our bodies the right thing. So our bodies are always seeking to get back into homeostasis. It's always looking for that. But it's also very resilient at helping you to survive. And one of the things that I really want to bring forward as well in this conversation of fat, because, again, I didn't know we we would talk about this, but in our culture, we're trying to kill fat. We're trying to get rid of fat. We're, we have over 200 million people in our country are overweight or obese right now. And right now we have 43% of our citizens are clinically obese, moving towards 50%, half of our population within the next couple of years. It's insane. And I think you come from a similar circumstance. In my family, just say I got 30 close family members, 28 of them were obese growing oh, up. Sure. And these are this doesn't mean that they're bad people. It doesn't mean that they're not trying. It doesn't mean that they want to be obese. It's just the nature of the environment that we're in and not really knowing how metabolism works. And so this idea of indiscriminately killing fat, we have to do away with that because our body fat is actually is pretty amazing. It's actually doing what it's designed to do. It's what's enabled us as humans to evolve and get to this point because it was this incredibly, incredibly intelligent energy storage system during times when things were a little bit leaner. And the problem is we we don't have any lean times anymore at all. So you were a clinician for
0: 10 years. I find your approach to talking about fat right now very revealing, and I'm interested to know why you take it. So uh, you're being very kind. Um, as a clinician, have you learned that you have to have a level of kindness to get people to start doing the right things? Like why lead with that instead of just saying like, cause your book ends with a prescription. You tell people go do this and look at you cage it a thousand different ways or, you know, hedge your bets saying that I don't like to prescribe things like everybody's different. Um, why are you leading with kindness when you talk about fat?
1: Tom, man, I love you. This is why I love talking with you. You know, it, it, I, it is very intentional. You know, I don't come from very kind circumstances. You know, like when I, was in college and and figuring all this stuff out. I I lived in Ferguson, Missouri, you know, and I lived in a apartment complex, sleeping on a mattress on the floor. I never met anybody who went went to college, let alone graduated, except maybe professors or something like that, but, you know, just from the environment that I was in, man, I was inundated with poor health and violence, you know, and even myself, I was kicked out of high school my entire junior year for fighting. I got kicked out of that same private university that I mentioned that you know i went to in the first place i got kicked out of that school for fighting who does that who goes to college and gets kicked out for fighting i just grew up in an environment where we're taught to solve our conflicts with violence and so i I say that to say part of it is i believe that humans are inherently good and but we are also products of of our of our of our environment but we're creators of our environment as well when we become aware of it and so once I changed it, started changing the inputs I was putting into my body, I didn't just become physically healthier. My, my thoughts changed, you know, my perception of reality. And I came across this quote from Einstein very early on. And I, I mentioned it towards the end of the book that the most fundamental decision that we make is whether we live in a friendly or a hostile universe.
0: I love that quote
1: so much. Man, like I get the chills right now because I, look, I lived in what seemed like a hostile situation. And I just started to see beauty everywhere, man. I started to see potential everywhere. I started to see the goodness in people because we're all just trying to get our needs met. And seeing in my clinical practice, nine times out of ten, the people making it to me, they, had been t- they weren't treated with kindness. And so I started to lead with that and see people open up just when I let them talk. And here's a big tip for the coaches out there. If you let somebody talk, if you just ask them questions, they will tell you the cause and cure of what's going on with them. They already know. But we have to have the the patience and the kindness to do those things. And also knowing that oftentimes, even though they were making the decision to put the food in their mouth, yes, but I'm coming from a place where I didn't know that there was a difference. I just didn't know. As soon as I got access, I started to make better choices. Now, you didn't
0: know, you know, know what? That yeah. there was a difference in the foods that you were eating, like the quality of calories?
1: Exactly. Yeah. I didn't know that there was a difference between a fish stick and, you know, wild caught salmon. It's just food, it's just stuff that we eat. And we're just trying to survive, you know, let alone thinking about thriving and, and cognitive performance and all this stuff. We're just trying to get by, you know. But once I became aware of how much food mattered, that's part one the awareness. But part two is also the accessibility. I had to take myself outside of my environment, Tom, and actually, you know, go to, you know, mile on the other side of town to a wild oats. You know, like I had to make exceptional decisions to make those things happen. But investing back in myself paid off dividends. But most folks don't even know that that first part is an option to begin with.
0: So we're leading with kindness, we're, I'm assuming, lowering people's defenses. We wanna avoid the morality of food. I know online you always avoid sort of BS. Um, You talk a lot about not getting involved in arguments over minutia and staying like, hey, let's look at the sort of big swaths of what's actually gonna make progress. Okay, cool, so we're being kind. We're, I'm assuming, we're encouraging people to be kind to themselves. This is not a moral failing if you find yourself unhealthy. What this is, is some fundamental misunderstanding. But you just said that people, if you let them talk, they'll actually tell you what what the fix is. So if they know what the fix is, why aren't they doing it?
1: Mm, This is a great question. For me, there's two parts. Part one is the education. And this is huge, and you're a big proponent of this because you might know that there's an issue with something, but you might not be educated on why that is and also what to do about it, right? And so in the instance of food, I mentioned a little bit briefly about my indoctrination in my first nutritional science class, which again, my professor meant well, but he was teaching me something that was fundamentally flawed because it ignores the fact that your body is made of food. All right. My my colleagues, I know the top cardiologists in the world, top gastroenterologists, top neurologists, the list goes on and on. They might go to school for 12 years to become a cardiologist and learn about food for two weeks. And your heart is made of fucking food. This is the problem. Like you don't even know what the thing is made of that you're treating. And then we're treating the dysfunction with a drug, right? You've got lisinopril, you've got statins. You're not understanding your heart is made from food. The blood running through your arteries is made from food. The arteries themselves are made from food. So the system itself is fundamentally flawed. So again people coming in, they might be aware that, yeah, I need to change what I'm eating, I know that. But they're so far removed from understanding how powerful it is and what to do about it because of the cookie-cutter stuff that, again, my colleague might get get two weeks of training in, which is like, eat a low-fat diet, plenty of fiber, all this really superficial BS. And then they're telling their patients, you need to lose weight. How? How? Like, and so often, and I talk about this in the book, our system of healthcare, it's been so, treating the healthcare professionals so poorly. It's a badge of honor to absolutely destroy yourself in medical school, and then try to pull yourself out of it, you know. And just so you see the high rates of suicide, depression, anxiety, obesity, dying from the very same things that they're treating. The system is flawed, and it's fundamentally because it's not appreciating the fact that we, as I'm seeing Tom right now, and as he's seeing me, we're seeing the food that we eat. It's remarkable.
0: That's really well said. Okay, so I'm going to start putting my finger on some of the things that I think end up causing people problems. This is obviously a world I'm extraordinarily familiar with. So put somebody on a low enough calorie diet, no matter what those calories are comprised of. I could give somebody a Twinkie with arsenic on it. And if it is low enough in calories over time, if the arsenic doesn't kill them, they're going to lose weight. They're gonna lose fat on top of a whole host of other problems. But like, what do you say to that, Sean Stevenson?
1: Ooh, this is good. And there's actually a professor who did the tweaky diet. Yes, he, he did, did the tweaky experiment. You know, just like, see, I told you guys it's just the calories. Now, here's some of the fundamental issues with that. Because anybody who's just as even as remotely versed in nutrition and just fundamentals of health. Because again, our system of medicine just focuses on disease, not what creates real health, but like, what is this impact that it's having on your neurotransmitters, this Twinkie diet? What is it doing to your pancreas? What are you making your heart cells out of, right? What is the long-term ramifications of of a diet protocol like that? And so here's the, the term that I, again, I'm pressing upon culture is epicaloric control. We mentioned the quality of food briefly, but another one of these major controllers is the microbiome. And I know that, of course, you had folks talking about this on the show, but I want to take this to another level, because this has to do with your body's processing of calories. And research, and this was published in the journal Cell, really crazy study. They discovered that there's a certain bacteria that they found in mice that blocked their intestines from absorbing as many calories from the food that they ate, right? Now, through the lens of allopathic medicine, we just need to bottle up whatever bacteria that is and sell that shit. You know? Big just farmland, block people's basically. intestines. That's it. You know, block people's intestines from absorbing as many calories. You can keep eating what you want. Not understanding your body does not operate in a vacuum. There's no such thing as side effects. These are direct effects because everything's interconnected. One of the things I saw early on in my clinical practice, probably five years into it, I've been in this space for 19 years, but 10 years in clinical practice, probably about five years into it, I came across a study because so many people were coming in. Statins were like, they were the hottest thing on the streets. All right. stat. Everybody everybody's coming in on a statin. And there was a study that came out revealing that folks taking a statin had a 30% increased incidence of having diabetes now, all right? Something was happening with creating abnormal blood sugar. You know, does this have to do with the beta cells? Does it have to do with insulin sensitivity? You know, that was open for debate, but we knew that it was happening. And so when you, when you try to treat that symptom with, okay, we just need to get everybody this bacteria, is this going to affect my bacteria's ability to produce B12? Is it going to affect my bacteria's ability to produce short-chain fatty acids to protect my gut lining and prevent autoimmune conditions? We can't think about it in those terms. So here's where we do think about it. All right, so they discovered this bacteria. Now, we transitioned this over to humans. Now, this was from researchers at the Wiseman Institute. So, Tom, in my practice, I could have somebody send out for a stool sample, never even see them a day in my life. I can get their report back and know with a high degree of certainty whether or not they're obese based on the makeup of their microbes.
0: That is insane.
1: And so the research now the question is, no. is really
0: fast while you're on that side note, what comes first? Do you just have a bad roll of the dice and uh, you came out of your mother's womb and the microbiome that you formed happened to be obesity um, promoting? Or is it your diet? The microbes respond to the fact that you're eating Cheetos and all that kind of stuff, all your cheese-like products. Uh, yeah, which which comes first?
1: It's a both-and world. It's a both-and world, Tom, because we are getting that down low specifically from our mother. But one of the studies was done in identical twins, right? You don't get more similar of a person to study or people to study to see the effects of one thing or the other than identical freaking twins, man. Right? When they find a twin whose bacteria cascade is associated with obesity, insulin resistance, and and weight gain, and then they find an, a, one of the other twins who has an, an, a microbiome who's, that's associated with leanness, right, and they track them over years, that they're, they're in the same household eating the same diet, but the twin who has the microbiome with the cascade associated with obesity became insulin resistant more often, became obese more often, than their lean microbiome twin, right? And the microbiome shifts based on our choices, based on our lifestyle, because one of the number one drivers, and I broke this down in Eat Smarter as well, what we discovered is that folks who are eating more of a quote, traditional diet, they're hunter-gatherer, closer to that type of diet, they have upwards of four times greater diversity in their microbes than the average person in the Western world. We're losing our diversity like crazy And a big part of this is we're not feeding the microbes their preferred food source for them to stick around in the first place, all right? So these are what we call, quote, prebiotics, and anybody can go to Google and look in prebiotic foods, but that's limited thinking. Like, we got asparagus, Jerusalem artichoke, uh, onions and garlic, that's small, small potatoes. Here's the truth. Every single food has prebiotic capacity, every single real food, for some strain of bacteria. And there might be a food that your ancestors have been eating for centuries that is suddenly stripped away by a diet choice or just by, by proxy, just by the environment that you're in, and suddenly you don't have that bacteria getting fed anymore, it has no choice but to become extinct in your system, right? And so what the researchers discovered was that the number one way, as your bacteria diversity goes down, your rate of insulin resistance goes up. Bacteria diversity goes down, your rate of diabetes goes up your rate of obesity goes up, your rate of insomnia goes up as your rate of microbes goes down, all right? We know that they have an inverse relationship. The number one way to reverse and improve the diversity of our microbes is so simple, is to just simply increase the diversity of foods that we're eating.
0: Now, why does that work? I get why if I had depleted a population and I can bring back what is there, but if it's truly gone extinct, is there dirt on the food? Like, how am I repopulating if I'm not taking a supplement of some kind with a probiotic in it?
1: Yeah, this is a great question as well. So, number one, uh, in my practice, I put people on probiotics so frequently, and we would get like these credible probiotic formulas. Some of them take like two years fermentation process, like wizards do spells over them, all kinds of shit. But we were missing the point because they they're not able to colonize and to populate in the gut to do all the cool things that they can potentially do if they're not given their preferred food substrates they're not given their prebiotic sources and so to answer that question yes we do want to have sources of probiotics coming in preferably through food right and we do go through that but also the most important thing again is not missing the point and this is the this is the point when you eat a food When you would just say we eat a berry when you're eating that berry, you're eating a prebiotic and you're eating that berry's microbiome as well. You're taking that on yourself. So it, it is coming along with probiotic with bacteria. It's just the nature of eating real food. Same thing with an avocado. You're eating that avocados microbiome. If you eat some kale, you're eating that kale's microbiome. If you eat some walnuts, you're eating that walnuts microbiome. So we have this limited thinking that I need probiotic, you know, some kind of special probiotic food, I need some special probiotic supplement. No, we're really missing the point here. Food already has the thing. But for many of us, especially where we are, we can like leverage, because I know some people have gotten some wonderful benefits adding in some fermented foods, absolutely. But we don't want to miss out on this prebiotic, because prebiotics are needed for the probiotics to make postbiotics, all right? So this is when they're making vitamins, minerals, short chain fatty acids in you for you. It's this beautiful symbiotic relationship. So I All hope that right. I makes want to
0: sense. Draw, it does, I wanna draw a straight line from the question about, hey, you can eat a Twinkie and if your calories are low enough, you are going to lose fat, and the punchline of what you just said. So here's what I'm taking away from that. You actually can, for sure, I promise you, You can lose weight eating anything if you keep your calories low enough. Now, some foods, because of the signaling effect of calories and not all calories are the same, you may have to restrict tighter and tighter and tighter on certain foods than you would on others. And so, yes, you can lose weight eating a Twinkie diet. But as you mentioned, not only do we have those kind of effects, but your blood vessels and all of that other stuff are made up of the very things that you eat and in processing they're like at a cellular structural level and a signaling level, you're changing the material that you're taking in. And it's like, I get why people are obsessed with like getting shredded and being in good shape. But when you begin to understand that that is a thing that happens and that there's actually a whole host of things that happen, then people begin to think about it in the right way. Now, what I found amazing about your book is you call out directly, hey, boys and girls, don't worry about whether you're paleo, vegan, uh, carnivore. Whatever. None of that matters. Listen to your body. Yeah. Now, it's... what I want to know is, what the
1: hell do you mean by that? <laughs> We're right now. There's a lot of infighting over minutia, as you mentioned that I said earlier. Um, and these wonderful diet frameworks, these are my friends, you know, the top person in each of those. And they, the reason that they write these books and that they have these positions is that they see results for their patients. They see results for the people that they're working with. They're not trying to be negligent. They're not trying to ignore the data. They're helping people. But what's also overlooked is that there's a large percentage of people that each of their diet frameworks is not helping. And that's the truth. And a big part of that is, many of these diet frameworks even though they can be wonderful they can also imprison you and they can leave things out make things off limits that you might need that somebody else doesn't need right but also it might be protecting you for something you know so there's there's balance there but we have to have a little bit more agency over our thoughts agency over our choices and this gets into the discomfort of becoming more educated about who we are you know and fortunately there's no easy way around this, you know. If you're really going to thrive and to, and to be the best version of yourself, we have to learn how we work. But the thing, the thing that I want people to understand, and just kind of going back, I, I got to really wrap this point up because you really like made that hard line point about this with the Twinkie diet. Those researchers at the Wiseman Institute who understand about what's you know the bacterium mice, they took bacteria samples, fecal samples, which fecal Transplantation is like one of the hottest things on the street as well. It's super weird, but it is. Um, but they, take, they took these fecal samples from folks who had a bacteria cascade associated with obesity and implanted it into lean mice. Then They took another set of fecal samples from human subjects who had a bacteria cascade associated with leanness and implanted that into lean mice. Those mice stayed lean the mice who received the implants from the folks with the bacteria cascade associated with obesity, those mice became insulin resistant. They gained weight and gained body fat, not because of calories, not because they changed what they were eating, because of the bacteria. These principles supersede any of the ideas that we carry about just managing calories, if you just get into a caloric deficit, because the mice are already eating the same thing, yet they're gaining weight. And I've seen, again, many other people listening, especially if they're in healthcare, people coming in, they're already at a thousand calorie a day diet, you know, and maybe they're six feet tall and their weight loss has been stuck. And then we, once we can have a certain level of like stepping away and not thinking we have all the answers and listen to the person, do some investigation, we might find out there's an underlying autoimmune condition, a thyroid issue. We might find out that inflammation is the causative factor because as you mentioned, we talk about that as well. There's so many things that control what calories do. Not to say that being in a caloric deficit can't just make weight fly off of somebody, absolutely. But even within that, there are things controlling that person's metabolism that's going to outpicture different results from somebody who might be at the exact same height and weight starting off as them. Fat people are not lean people
0: who eat too much. How on earth is that possible? Okay,
2: so let me start with one thing In using the words fat people in the book. Uh, I uh, am speaking as they did uh, 50, 60 years ago, knowingly, typically, I would have said people who suffer from obesity are not people who don't to eat too much. So I just want
0: to point sure. out that the uh,
2: social unacceptability of the language was on purpose to make a point. And in um, the book,
0: it feels completely contextual.
2: Okay. So, you know, we've grown up with this belief system that people get fat because they eat too much. That's what we've been taught. If you, if you gain weight easily, if you're someone who fattens easily, another term, I knowingly sort of co-op from 1950s diet books on um, the, you are uh, supposed to get that way, not because your body gains fat easily, or your body gains weight easily, just like somebody who's, you know, uh, might, 12-year-old son, soon to be 13, is, uh, plays AAU basketball, and there are kids who gain height easily <laughs> and kids who don't, particularly at 12. So he's 5'5", and he wishes he was 5'10", and he'll never get there. Um, that's not determined by how much he eats or exercises. That's biological. So the alternative hypothesis, those of us who get fat and easily, simply our bodies want to store calories as fat. So some people's bodies don't, some people's bodies do. And the problem with thinking that those of us who do get that way merely because we eat too much is and the advice you give them is to eat less and exercise more, which doesn't fix the problem. The body's still trying to accumulate fat or it's still trying to, technical term is partition the calories it
0: takes in into fat. All right. I think so the- we need to dive deeply into that because that that moment there is where all the conflict is. So talk to me about the um the energy balance equation and how it could be possible and you talk about the mouse study in the book which was fascinating i would never heard that before but talk to me about how the the energy balance equation isn't the only thing that matters it just seems impossible for a lot of people that it isn't a simple equation of if i put in 2000 calories and i don't burn 2000 calories i am obviously going to gain weight and if i'm burning 2000 calories and i only eat 1800 then I should lose weight and therefore I should just be able to tell people eat less and you're burning. So why doesn't that end up working?
2: Okay so that energy balance equation which is the first law of thermodynamics that energy is conserved um and again since uh, occasionally since the 1930s and then it accelerates in the 1960s in the history you start you seeing people rely on thermodynamics as the explanation for obesity. So the idea is you've got Delta E, the change in energy in a system, is equal to the energy in minus the energy out. That's what the law of thermodynamic tells us. And it basically just says energy is conserved. So if a system is getting more energetic, it's got to take in energy, more energy than it expends. If the system's getting less energetic. It means that it's letting energy out. The energy isn't magically appearing or disappearing. So the amount of energy in the universe is conserved. The amount of energy in a closed system is conserved. It all makes perfect sense, and it's always true. That's why we call it a law of physics. But all it says is that one thing is equal to something else. So in this case, if you think of the energy in the system as the energy stored in fat, the energy stored in fat goes up. If delta E is positive, then that's equal, that's the equivalent of saying more energy is going into the fat than is leaving the fat, okay? If delta E, the energy stored in the fat goes down, delta E is negative, that's equal to, it's the equivalent of saying more energy is leaving the fat than is going in. It's like, makes, it's so, uh, crazy simple. It's one law of thermodynamics. It's easy to understand. It's an example I use in my lectures is imagine if we were asking the question, why is the energy, you've got a room full of people and the energy in the room of people is increasing because people are more and more people are appearing in the room. You know, if they're coming into the room, that means more people are entering the room than leaving it. So the room's getting more crowded, the energy in the rooms, you know, it's just obvious if your bank account is going up, if you're getting richer, you're taking in more money than you're spending. you know. If you're getting poorer, you're spending more money than you're taking in. It's all the same thing, but it doesn't tell you anything about causality. So for instance, somebody, the fat storage can go up for many reasons, but the fact that more energy is going in than is leaving is just another way of saying that the energy stored in the fat is increasing.
0: Okay, but where is- this gets interesting is for what what people attack on this point is okay i'm willing to buy that the body has hormonal responses and like given if the insulin levels going up then i'm more likely to store fat but that doesn't change the fact that if this person who is getting obese would just eat less that they would hit a certain point where it isn't possible for them to store fat so while there might yes, be some complexities true. at play like Let's just go to the chase. They just need to eat less and it will work. And you don't deny that that's true, right?
2: No, no, of course not. One of the arguments always for this energy balance idea was if you starve humans or you starve rodents, they will lose weight. And they'll eventually preferentially burn their fat stores. They won't at first. First, they'll go through their glycogen. Then they'll go start using their protein. Then they'll shift over to using fat to preserve their protein, but they will lose weight. So oftentimes, and, and I recently wrote about this for the, the news site, Stat News, uh, and uh, I got numerous um, versions of emails that said, in effect, I got, I hate this. Um, there were no fatties at Auschwitz. Okay. And unfortunately, Obesity researchers actually thought that way. Because you could starve people and they lost weight, somehow that translated to meaning they got fat to begin with because they ate too much. So one of the ways you challenge that kind of thinking is you find other examples of biological systems that you could affect in a similar way. So for instance, you, could, you have a growing child and you can starve that child and stunt its growth. But you would never say that it grows because it eats too much, because you know that the growth is a hormonal phenomenon driven by growth hormone and something like growth factor and other things, and the child eats a lot because it's fueling the growth, which is a you know a biological response to the hormonal secretions. Um, you could starve a tumor and inhibit the growth of the tumor but you would never say that the tumor grows because it eats too much. Even though once a cell becomes malignant, it start, it will upregulate the receptors it needs to take in more fuel to feed its
0: growth. I think there's a subtle change in there that I think you make clear in the book, and I just want to see if I'm understanding this right, which is the you can starve the child, and it will still grow despite the lack of calories. It won't grow as much. You can starve the tumor, but it will still grow. It won't grow as much. And what's interesting in, in like this whole debate is, yes, you're not going to find any obese people in Auschwitz because you've, you've gone past some certain point that is the realm of reality, right? So most people are, are never going to live like that. There's huge implications when they're not. Um, you know, confined and having their food restricted that they're going to go and and eat to another balance. But where the story gets really fascinating is somewhere in there is a breaking point where you can actually, and you talk about this mouse study, you can actually have them in a semi-starved state and they still get a little
2: fat. They don't get as fat as they would. Yeah, um, that's not a mouse study. I do use examples of specific mice studies, but it is effectively every mouse study. So, you have any animal model of obesity, and the most famous two were the, the where you lesion a part of the brain called the ventromedial hypothalamus, um, and then these uh, leptin-deficient uh, animals, OB-OB animals, and in those cases, you can, um, in a, yeah, literally semi-starve the animal. So, that, what, what that means is you measure the amount of food that a lean animal will eat, and then you feed this, for instance, the leptin deficient animal, only half of that, okay? So half so you're, of what
0: lean animal would eat. So we should be more or less in starvation mode. We should be in starvation mode. And yet as the
2: animal grows up, it accumulates a massive amount of excess fat anyway. So that animal will grow up to be obese. It'll be smaller than the lean animal. It'll weigh less, but most of its calories will be, it'll have stored a significant amount of calories as excess fat because that's what its body is trying to do. And the point is in every animal model of experiment, you can literally, you can, if not half starve animals, you can calorie restrict them. You can only feed them as much as a lean animal and the animal will get fatter anyway. It might not, may or may not get as fat as it would if it got to eat ad libitum. But it will get excess fat anyway, and in some cases will be definitively obese, as with these OBOB OB mice or the, the BMH lesioned animals. Um, what that tells you, what it should have told the researchers who began doing these studies around 1940, is that the animals are have... Whatever the defect is, it's trying to make the animal store calories as fat or the fat tissue is now wired to take up fat and not to let it go. And instead, people just assume that somehow these animals were eating less or they were more efficient. So they were still in energy imbalance. They tried to hold on to their paradigm rather than just simply say, look, these animals are clearly storing calories as fat even when they have starved. Humans say they do that all the time, okay? So that's always been, an, you know, the idea was people uh, obese people said, yeah, sure, I can, I can lose a little weight by eating less, but I'm hungry all the time. And eventually the weight comes back. And in fact, there are, there are trials done, there are famous starvation studies done by Ansel Keys at the University of Minnesota, where he starved conscientious objectors for wanted to get 25% of their weight off and They lost significant weight in the first six weeks. I forget the numbers at the moment. Then they lost a little less weight. And then eventually their weight loss stopped. They were hungry all the time. They thought about food all the time. They were exhausted all the time. Their hair fell out. Their sex drives went away. They were miserable. And then when they started refeeding them at the end of the trials, they put fat
0: back on at
2: extraordinary speeds.
0: At rates that were different than the... Caloric intake would predict
2: would predict it right. So you would predict a certain amount of weight gain, but instead it was just sort of extraordinarily quick weight gain, and they all ended up fatter than they started. Okay. So People one of looking the places- at that
0: study would say, well, you took them off, you let them eat whatever they wanted. Of course, they're overeating the calories. They're in this massive surplus, and they're just putting it on as fat. There's there's no contradiction there in the energy balance.
2: Well, the, you know, when you have competing paradigms, there's often no care contradictions. The paradigms tend, and by paradigms, I mean, you know, the literal understanding of a paradigm. So you have a whole way of thinking about the problem and you tend to ask different questions. So another way to look at this is just to ask different questions. It's sure if we starve an obese person, they'll lose weight. If we starve a lean person, they'll lose weight also, okay? So the question is then when you refeed them, why do they go back to being obese? When you allow them to refeed, why do they go back to being obese? Um, For the obese person, the lean person only goes back to being maybe a little fatter than they used to be. Um, But the other issue is why is it you have to starve the obese person to make them lean? Where the lean person can eat as much as they want and remain lean for the and most as part. And it's people's
0: argument though, that lean person isn't eating as much as they want. They've got more control or they're doing more exercise or maybe some are generous and say, um, their hypothalamus has turned up the thermostat and they're you know burning some of these calories by kicking off body heat or something like that.
2: Yeah, and all of that's possible. But now you've got a whole variety of hypotheses you could test. So one of the things, you know, one of my even, problems with the research community in general was they never bothered to test their hypotheses once they embraced them. So that's, you know, at the end, if you remember at the end of Good Calories, Bad Calories, in the epilogue, I spent, it was the first time my editor really let me say what I thought. And I went off on the absolute failure of this nutrition obesity research community to do reasonable science, because even if it, when confronted with a viable hypothesis, So what scientists do is they test their hypotheses rigorously before they believe them to be true, and that didn't happen in this field. So the alternative is, yeah, it's quite possible that, you know, the people who remain lean just uh, consciously eat to moderation. Or one of the things they believe they, you know, they are smart enough to see when they're getting heavy, so then they eat less. But then you could ask the question, how do animals do it? Okay, because animals seem to eat as much as they want. Um, Certainly, you know, you look at the deer that, you know, are so copious in New England. Um, You know, you get a lot of food available, you get more deer. You don't get fatter deer and you don't get obese deer. And they seem to eat all the time. And they're only physically active when they have to be. They're not going out jogging or running an extra mile. Um, I had these experiences in reporting good calories, bad calories. One of my favorite was... um, I was interviewing this uh, uh, New Zealand epidemiologist who Michael Pollan had talked about in his book in defense of food. And she had done these studies with, Uh, aborigines actually in Australia, uh, aboriginal populations who were living in urban areas. So they had relatively high rates of obesity and diabetes and hypertension. And she moved them back to the bush and they lived like their ancestors did and some of their populations still were and they all got much healthier. And she said in the bush, they couldn't overeat. And then she told me the story of uh, them killing a kangaroo the day before and eating six pounds of meat each. And I said, this, "You're going to have to define overeating to me because these people are eating six pounds of kangaroo meat one day." And then she said, "Yeah, it's a good point." And then she told me the story about some of her colleagues coming out from the university in the in the city where they worked, and they came out to visit the experiment going on in the bush and they went for a jog and these aboriginals uh, were sitting around on their haunches laughing hysterically because this was the funniest thing they'd ever seen people voluntarily exercising if they didn't have to <laughs> you know people come along uh, like herman ponser the duke uh, anthropologist who recently wrote a book about his studies of uh, aboriginal populations around the world and how they do not expend any more energy than the rest of us do, and yet they remain remarkably lean as long as they eat their traditional diets. You know, as a journalist covering this field, I had the opportunity to move from discipline to discipline to discipline and to ask these questions, to look for the experiments, to see if they were done, to look for the observations, to see if you could find observations that were contrary. So you can find populations that had extreme obesity despite relative starvation.
0: Um, okay. The before PM. before we go any farther, I think especially because yeah. I want to deal with Herman Ponser, who I've had on the show, yeah. um, and I I want to get your hypothesis about what is going on. And in the book, right. you go into a lot of detail about you know it's really a tiny fraction of caloric difference between somebody that. Um, maintains their weight and somebody that ends up putting on, you know, 20 pounds in 10 years or whatever. And it was pretty startling to hear that. And so you're like, nobody ever talks about it's, it's, it's like, I forget what you said, like 12 calories a day,
2: 20 pounds in a decade is 19 calories a day stored as fat. Okay. So that's the equivalent of like, I don't know, two almonds worth of fat, maybe one and a half. I forget the number. So, and it's, it's, M- more interesting than that because you basically store all the fat you consume. So when you eat a mixed meal, your body immediately starts partitioning the fuel. So the, the glucose uh, goes to the portal vein, to the liver, and then to the rest of the body, and you burn that for fuel. And then the fat that you consume gets uh, carried by lipoproteins called chylomicrons to the fat tissue and stored. And over the course of a day, uh, if you're eating a sort of relative, you know, a diet of, say, typical fat, composition, um, you'll store on the about 1,000 calories in your fat cells every day. And then if you're remaining lean, on average, 1,000 calories will come out of your fat cells and be used for fuel by the, by the next day. But if you're getting fatter, only 980 calories will come out, <laughs> okay? So that's what you have to explain. And again, one of my arguments about the the science in general is because people don't even never bother to quantify these effects. And because they don't actually study, the people who study obesity and hunger don't actually pay attention to the science of fat metabolism and fat storage. They're unaware of these numbers. Some are, some they're getting more aware as people like me have been hammering on them, but that's what you're explaining. So even if you say, okay, people get fat, because they eat too much, you still have to explain why eating too much only leads to 19 or 20 calories a day being trapped in the fat tissue out of a 1000 that goes in and 980 come out.
0: Hmm. You know, it's it's real, just to say it in like super layman's terms, it is it is this really tiny amount that no one is going to be conscious of doing that would be extraordinarily easy. If getting obese over a 10 year period were really the difference between eating or not eating two almonds. Like, you know, it's pretty hard to believe that somebody would be incapable of doing that. So well, that's the other now, thing.
2: So if you're telling them to eat less, what's the issue, especially, you know, we all imagine, okay, well, somebody is obese, they're 40, 50, 100 pounds overweight, you could imagine how hard it is to get that back down to normal. But as we're getting fatter. We're getting fatter at this rate of 20 or 40 calories a day. I have a friend uh, I use as an example in the book, who by the time he was 18 weighed 400 pounds. It's about six foot three. So he was, you know, if he had been 220 pounds lighter, he would have had a healthy BMI. And you figure out that 220 pounds over 18 years is about the equivalent of 100 calories a day stored as fat. Okay, so he was storing 100 calories of fat a day that his lean friends were not. If you could stop that, I mean, he was miserable. You know, this kid was tormented Because he
0: was trying to get lean.
2: There were two reasons. He was miserable because he was trying to get lean. So he was, he was hungry his whole life. And he was being bullied and ridiculed for not being lean. Mm. So the extraordinary social burden of this disease on top of this idea that you're trying to eat less your whole life. So you're hungry your whole life on top of the idea that you should be out there exercising. So it's like, you know, I don't know if you've ever watched a gym class of um, like 10 year olds run around the track. But you could separate. They, they separate out basically by body fat content. So on the front, you have the short very lean ones who look like Kenyans, but they're 10 years old and they're flying around the track and their feet are barely touching the ground at the back. You've got the poor obese kids who are, you know, every step is painful. And the idea is if those obese kids are being ridiculed, right, because they're running slowly, they seem miserable, Mm. they're not flying and they're sitting there thinking, why can't I fly around the track like these other kids? What's wrong with me? You know, but the point is that you're talking 100 calories a day. That's, you know, don't eat that egg.
0: How um, do you think about lifestyle? Like, what's the right way to go about it? Yeah. What do like? Do we have the occasional Twinkie? How do you how do you approach it? I uh, and maybe this is just the
4: way I'm wired. I just wish we would take the, you know, turn the temperature down on this stuff a little bit.
0: The emotional um, temperature,
4: the emotional temperature on this stuff down. Uh, I, one of the great gifts of my career uh, being an anthropologist is that I am, it is my job to keep eyes open and look across cultures and look across human experience and see that diversity and understand all of it as pretty normal, right? That the, that the, uh, the universe of normal for humans is pretty darn broad. And so I get nervous and I just am skeptical about anybody who's trying to sell you a very narrow view of what normal should be or what healthy should be, and it has to be this, and it can't have any of these. And you know, I, I'm not sure about that. I think try to stay as active as you can, more active the better, uh, unless you have overtraining syndrome, then you've done too much. But none of the, probably you're not there unless you're like an Olympic level athlete. Um, so we should all be exercising more. Uh, I think if we can do it outside. All the better. Um, I think, you know, some people are going to find diet-wise that a really strict diet works great for them because that works for the way that they're wired. And can you
0: define strict? Because I know people are going to want to hear what what they should be eating or not eating. I just mean a diet that has
4: a diet that has a lot of bright line rules. I don't eat any of this. You know, I look at my list of foods that Americans eat and I cross off you know, half or more of them. And I just never, ever eat them ever. Um, I think if you had to
0: pick uh, like a thing to judge them by, would it be whole food is always best. And so don't eat anything processed or do you have like, what are your bright line rules or what bright line rules could we extract from the Hadza? Like, I'm not sure the, but for somebody who really wants optimal health.
4: Okay. Yeah. I think the best thing to do would be to avoid ultra processed foods.
0: Yeah. because I think they're hyperpalatable or is there something else that makes them problematic?
4: There's a few things. One is they are hyperpalatable. So they, they screw up that he- hedonic response. You, you overeat because you don't ever feel full and you always feel, your brain is always excited about it. Um, they are typically in the processing, they are, any fiber is taken away. Um, they're usually low protein. So there are your two you know, there's a there's more than two, but those are two good signals to your brain that you've eaten enough is that you have enough bulk and that you have protein. Um and so you take those two signals away, then you're gonna overconsume. You're gonna go over consume carbs or fats or both because that's all that's left that's all that's gonna be left in this thing is carbs and fats. Um they're they they ultra processed foods commonly have lots of added sugars which are no good, lots of added oils which are no good. So you know if you can avoid those prepackaged foods that are stuffed full of that stuff and, and all the good stuff, the protein and fiber has been ripped out. If you can avoid that and, and try to look for whole foods and stuff that's you know, minimally processed and not destroyed in that way, uh, I, I think a lot, you know, I, I suspect that would solve a lot of problems. I know that over half of the food, half of the calories that Americans consume these days, um, over half of it is ultra processed calories. Uh, the the number one single source of calories in the American diet is added sugar followed closely by added oils. So, you know, uh, we got to stop doing that. I think that's what I would
0: focus on. So you, in the book, you obviously acknowledge, look, there's nuance here and I'm not saying that this is good, bad, or indifferent. Is that an area that you have studied plan to study in terms of like, why is oil bad? Why mm. is sugar bad? Like if it isn't the sort of insulin sugar answer to why people get fat, why do you worry about sugar?
4: Oh, because I think that hyperpalatable foods, ultra-processed foods, um they screw up the energy matching signaling that your hypothalamus does. They are too delicious, so you're pushed to overeat them. They are devoid of the signaling molecules that would typically tell you that you're full, and so, you know, when when hunger and satiety you have to be in perfect balance like this, and you just do that, well, now you're in trouble, right? And I think that's what I think is so beautiful about like Kevin Hall's ultra processed food uh, overfeeding studies. I think they show that really nicely. So people who aren't over consuming and aren't overweight, um, then I don't think you're going to have as much of a problem. Although I'm I am point I'm walking I'm, I'm tiptoeing into stuff I don't know as well, so I'll be careful. But um, I don't see the issue now. You're so. There's sort of a I don't I want to make sure we're not talking past each other. I'm not arguing that uh that just pure white refined sugar is a great idea or it doesn't matter or
0: anything like that. No, you're totally. talking about, what you know, I'm trying to figure out is, and, is what is going on, like why is yeah. refined white sugar problematic? You've looked at so much more data than I have. If you have a hypothesis around why that's so I get the hyper palatable yeah. part, and maybe that's it, but I'm just curious if there's anything other than the overeating or no, it's problem is entirely, it's just going to make you overeat. And I'm asking as somebody who wants to be able to eat ice cream. <laughs> yeah. Um, I eat ice cream.
4: Um, so yeah, I, I think, I think it's okay. Look, sugar is a fructose molecule and a glucose molecules, molecules stuck together. And when it gets into your blood, that's what it is. And it's the same as there's the same fructose and glucose molecules that your body's going to break down and use that way from other carbohydrates. So, um, you know, table sugar and a potato and a slice of bread and, uh, you know, a, a jar of honey are all going to end up being the same molecules in your blood. That, that's just how, that's how digestion works. And that's, that's reality. Now, you know, if, if they're if you have white refined sugar without any fiber to sort of help slow down the digestion of it and to signal that you're full, then yeah. Okay. By itself, that's a problem. But, but I think it's not because the glucose in your blood knows it came from white refined sugar. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any memory that, oh, I came from something bad. So now I'm going to be worse than I would be if I came from a nice, a good source. Right. Uh, So I do think it comes down to matching your energy needs with what you eat. And I don't think I think villainizing particular kinds of of nutrients doesn't help.
0: I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. It's, uh, you know, this is uh, such a fascinating topic to me because I start thinking about it in terms of, okay, what's going on? I step back and I look at the American population. And I say, even from the time I was a kid, it like, so my family, um, I grew up in a morbidly obese family. And I remember thinking about it as a kid, like my family's fat, yo, and like other families are not. And now it's like, my family is completely normal. Like, it is so common. And that's in like, yeah. you know, I'm only 45. So it's like not in exactly, you know, hundreds of years. Yeah. So, in that amount of time, it's become like so widespread. So, you start asking, okay, what's going on here? Yeah. Um, overconsumption. Like, I, I'm perfectly happy with the idea that, look, ultimately, this is a caloric imbalance for that individual person. And, but I think that just as you've been very even handed about that, there are also secondary consequences that beg sure. questions. But the reason that I'm I'm not yet full, and look, I fully acknowledge this is largely ignorance, but I'm not fully convinced yet that there isn't something going on with carbohydrates because I think about things like, okay, if insulin is damaging cells, And there are certain things that like if I eat a sugar, a white refined sugar, this would be my hypothesis on why white refined sugar, for instance, Mm -hmm. is worse than honey, that there's something in honey that's slowing its absorption or something so that even though once it hits my bloodstream, it's the same. But if a white refined sugar doesn't have any of those things around it to slow its absorption, it gets into my bloodstream. Now, things like my muscles uptaking that sugar or my liver having stores that it can fill with that. If I'm not exercising, not depleting that and I'm eating foods that are, that get into my bloodstream faster. So they overwhelm the, the non insulin response systems of my body. And so my muscles can't uptake it fast enough. And now there's, way too much insulin pumping through my system. That's beginning to damage my cells. Then I start going, okay, well, there's a logical through line. Again, the data may show that this just isn't true, but I can see a logical through line to how there's other things at play here than just a caloric deficit or not.
4: Right. So the way that you would test that is, is you would assign people to different diets and you would say, you're going to eat a low glycemic index diet, high fat, and you're gonna eat a high glycemic index diet, high carb, and we'll, and we'll check back with you in a year. And this has been done a few times, and the result is consistent. People who stick to the diets, whether it's not as high glycemic index or not, if you stick to the diet, you lose weight, and everything gets better. Your uh, HbA1c gets better, your, uh, your blood glucose levels get better, insulin resistance gets better. People can be, you know, the, the, the diet fit study that you probably have heard about, um, people on the high carb, low fat and on the high fat, low carb diets had similar percentages of people who reversed their type two diabetes. Um, reverse is a, is a tricky thing, but they didn't, they no longer needed medication. They were, they were able to maintain uh, sugar in a, in a safe way in their blood. Um, weight loss was the same. Uh, and so when you lose weight, this is why I tend to focus on weight first and the, the secondary stuff second.
0: When you, if you're overweight and you lose the weight, those measures all get better. No matter what. So if you eat the Twinkie diet but lose weight, you're, you're still going to be better off.
4: Yeah, that's right. And you probably still shouldn't eat the Twinkie diet. I'm not recommending that.
0: But you'll be better off eating the Twinkie diet and losing the weight than eating some other diet and have they done, it. have they done something like that with diabetics? Like, so their weight is coming down. Mm-hmm. Would they be able to better manage their blood sugar, even though they're eating these high sugary foods, as long as they're in a caloric deficit?
4: Okay. So di- if you, if your body tips over into this pathological state where you're no longer responding to insulin correctly, then I think that's a different situation. And people on high fat and high carb diets who are sort of pre-diabetic, have equally good outcomes that's the diet fits res- response and that's the danziger et al 2005 study that did atkins ornish weight watcher they, they did all, all five diets i think so there are these diet uh th- there are those if you are already in that pathological state where your cells aren't working, you know your insulin response is is pathological well then i i think that's a different game and i'm not gonna I, I you know i'm not a diabetic i'm not a diabetes doctor and i'm not gonna Tell people what to do to keep. I know that if you keep on a really low carb diet in that state, you can do better. But that's talking to somebody who's already has a sort of broken response. And I, I hesitate to take that as particularly
0: instructive about what happens to people who have normal response. So to me, that's super intriguing. And when I see in a disease state, it responds well to this thing, my natural inclination is, well, then that's probably the thing that led you to the disease state. But the data may not be there to back up that layman's hypothesis. So I'm perfectly open to that. Yeah. Um, l- let me ask you, what would be your fantasy test to run? If you could lock people in a room and they only oh, ate sure. what you gave them, like, what, what is the the one question where you're like, if we could answer this, mm-hmm. we'd really know about health.
4: Oh, I know. how. You, well, okay. About dietary health, then that's easy. You do this study that, um, that Kevin Hall would love to do. And so maybe if somebody's listening, they want to fund Kevin Hall for this, he's already set up to do it. Rather than doing, you know, month long or two month long crossover studies, you would do it for a year and you would have somebody in a, you know, basically in a hotel room uh, and you would make them, you'd make sure that they ate exactly what you said they were gonna eat and you would do biomarkers the whole time to ensure that they were on track. And it's a very simple test, right? If If the calorie version of this is right, then it won't matter if they're in the high carb arm or the high fat arm, their weight gain and weight loss will be entirely due to caloric benefit, you know, the number of calories they're eating. Um, And if you put them on a negative calorie balance and they lose weight, everybody benefits regardless of, you know, from the weight loss, regardless of how they got there the data that I'm aware of for dietary studies that are already in my mind say that that's going to be the outcome, but we haven't done the lock them down yet. So let's lock them down and do it. And so the flip side is if I'm wrong and calories don't matter and it's all about carbohydrates, then it shouldn't. Then if I have a high carb diet and a low and a high, high carb and a high fat diet, the high fat diet, the people should be doing fantastic and losing weight, even though they're matched calorie for calorie right? And that's the prediction of, of, of that carbohydrate-based view of the world. And we've done, Kevin Hall's done the short version of that. It's not short. I mean, it's still a long time to do t- uh, two-month crossovers or one-month crossovers. Um, but you know, we've done the long version of that, where like which is diet fits, which is I give you a high-carb diet and you're assigned to that group randomly, and I give you a high-fat diet and you're assigned to that group randomly, and we see what happens in, in a year. Um, and so far the data support the energy view, but, but yeah, I mean, if the, the, the dream experiment is, is the lockdown study for a year.